Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there uh, with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Welcome back to another episode of What Got You There. Today we are joined by Eric Wall. Eric is a performance artist who's famous for his mesmerizing on-stage presentations, which encapsulate art and speech. As an internationally recognized graffiti artist and number one best-selling business author, Eric redefines the term keynote speaker. Pulling from his history as both a business strategist and an artist, he has grown to become one of the most sought-after speakers today. He's the author of Unthink and his newest book, The Spark and the Grind, Ignite the Power of Disciplined Creativity. Eric faced a series of life-changing events, including losing his job and all of his money, which allowed him to rediscover his inner creative and become one of the most impactful speakers today. Eric, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sean. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, no, this is going to be a fun one. You, uh, you're a fascinating individual and someone I've been following for a while, so really looking forward to picking your brain and hearing a lot about the things you've got going on. So for my listeners who are not familiar with you, uh, you want to give a little background into who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a, uh, a disruptive strategist. So that's what I do for a living. So my, my background is as an artist, uh, oftentimes been branded as a graffiti artist. That's one of the arts that I do that happens to be the most provocative, the most disruptive, the one that gets the most what? Uh <laughs> action. And that's good. Uh, it's one element. And I'm able to speak very clearly to the world of uh, graffiti and incorporate it into art, incorporate it into philosophy and thinking and, and into business and differentiation and uh, storytelling and many of the elements that make uh business good, make marketing good, elevate the brand, differentiate from the competition. So there's there's a lot of elements that, that background does. My, the, the second thing that I do is I, I uh, am a professional speaker on the corporate circuit. And so uh, that's really my main job right now is I do about 100 shows a year. I perform all over the world for Fortune 500 companies when they're going to have a, a meeting, an annual meeting where they get everyone together, the troops together, and they want to kick off the meeting on a high note or they want to open the audience mind, open their company's mind to being able to think differently, whether it's about leadership, whether it's about social media, whether it's about sales, whether it's about communication, team building. If they want to open their minds and look at some of these concepts they have maybe heard all their life, but want them to take different action, that's where I come on almost as a catalyst or that disruptive strategist or a performer to kick off these meetings on a, on a dynamic high note and get stretch everyone's minds and get them to think differently. So that is the, the longhand version of, of what I do. But I really am a disruptive strategist. I'm, I'm there to create aha moments from the stage for large corporations. No, disruptive is the perfect word. Uh, unfortunately, I have not been able to see one of your presentations live. Uh, but the first time I saw one of your videos, my draw was just on the floor. It was I was fascinated. I was mesmerized. And then it truly sparked me to think differently. So I'm very much looking forward to jumping into all that. But before we do, uh, how do you start your day? Systematically. Uh, and that's that's very intentional is I will write out the evening before I will write out the not the low hanging fruit, but really the overarching goals. What do I want to have accomplished by the end of the day tomorrow? Uh, so I write that out the evening before when I get up the next morning. First thing I do is coffee, read, meditate and write. Uh, and that's all within the first 30 to 45 minutes, depending on, on how deep I go into the writing portion. But that is something that I do every single day. And then I will uh, go work out really quite aggressively uh, for a short period of time. I'm, I'm very much into ballistic exercise. Uh, and then I will eat breakfast. And then it's 7.30 or 8 a.m. But that, that's how I start every single day. So you mentioned ballistic exercise. Can you dive deeper into that? Sure. Uh, that is explosive motions. And so uh, either sprinting out of the gates, sprinting up hills, powerlifting, uh, really explosive dynamic movements, being gentle with my tendons and core body strength, but explosive in my movements, in, in how I train. And so I don't go to the gym for 90 minutes and do a long aerobic uh, workout. I go in for usually about 19 minutes. 
uh, but I'm sprinting through that. We're uh, very much high impact, maybe 45 to 60 seconds in between reps. This is free weights in the gym. Uh, so I'll do two body parts per day. I'll do uh, maybe chest and thighs, and I'll hit those two really hard with eight to 12 sets each, but with just uh, 45 seconds in between intervals. So it's a very intense, short workout, but that's what I've done for the last 25 years. That's normal to me to embrace that resistance, embrace that explosive. Almost I, every time I work out, it's almost like training for I'm going in for a fist fight. Is <laughs> I ramp, I ramp up mentally. I go and kick its ass in the gym for 19 minutes, and I uh, go into complete relaxation afterwards. So it's a very systematic, very programmed routine of preparation. Extreme workout, relaxation. No, I love how you hit on the mental side, the physical side. Uh, many of the CEOs of uh, corporations we've interviewed before actually have an exact same routine. Uh, you mentioned then, right when you're done working out, you really calm yourself down. Um, anything specifically you're doing there to recover? Yeah, that's uh, breathing. Um, and so that's just even on the car ride home is breathe deep in through the nose, out through the mouth in sets of seven. And uh, breathe in for seven, hold for seven, out for seven. And that's just, again, a pattern that I've used to slow my body state down, uh, take it past resting into a, a heightened state of relaxation. And then I'll come back in and I'll, I'll do some stretching through this time too. And then I start launching into my more uh, academic portion of the day again. But that that workout portion is all meant, it's, it's about adrenaline. Uh, a lot of that adrenaline is what sets the tone for that workout. So I, whether the workout was a success or not is a lot of times determined before I even set foot in the gym. And so that's that mental preparation going in. Am, is, am I mentally, physically, and spiritually prepared for a deep, hard-ass workout for the next 19 minutes? Am I, am I ready to not look at my phone for 19 minutes? Am I ready to not talk to anyone else in the gym? For 19 minutes? Am I ready to push my body to its limits for every single set for all of those, you know, 18 sets that I will do for those 19 minutes? Am I prepared to do this? And once I, once I get to that mental state, then the difficulty uh, or the resistance of the weights is a welcome. Like I was, I was looking forward to it being this heavy. I was looking forward to breaking this sweat. I was looking forward to experiencing a little nausea because I know I pushed my body that hard. So those are all things that I'm looking for in the workout is, is extreme resistance. And I, I welcome it when it comes. Oh, Eric, I could, I could dive all day into this with just hearing your mindset into this. Uh, it's no wonder how successful you've been, both your speaking and then your artistic talent. Uh, and then it was really interesting hearing you talk about the breath work. Uh, we're actually having an episode with Brian McKenzie uh, next week. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, he works closely with Wim Hof and Laird Hamilton. So I've incorporated a bunch of his breath work, and I've noticed just tremendous results. So it's cool hearing you say that. Now I definitely want to dive over uh, into your artistic side of things. So, I mean, being so fascinating on stage, th is this something you've done your entire life, or did this occur later in your life, your whole artistic talent and speaking? Yeah, much later in life. Uh, and my, my story is not unlike, uh, I would assume, virtually every one of your listeners, where I was told at a very early age that, you know, I wasn't that great at art because I didn't color within the lines because I, I went too fast because I didn't pay attention to detail. And, you know, that's not a big deal. It was a well-meaning teacher. We have well-meaning parents. We have friends, colleagues that make critiques about maybe our art. And maybe it wasn't meant to be received in the way that it was delivered. But, you know, I'm seven years old. Someone tells me, in my head, my art sucks. I'm not going to create it anymore. And so what children do, what many of your listeners did is they can actually recall with amazing clarity, a person, a moment, a time, a craft, a dance, a song that they sang, created, shared. And it's like an extension of ourselves. It's an extension of our ego or our identity that we're sharing with the world um, in the form of this craft when we're very young. And as it starts to get critiqued, we weren't prepared for it to be critiqued um, in a way that wasn't always positive. And so when we get that kind of feedback early on, we begin to insulate ourselves. We begin to kind of push back. We begin to not be creative, not take those risks. We go to a default language, 
which is that which can be measured. So we become very proficient in getting 20 out of 20 on our spelling test. We become very proficient in mathematics and history and reading because that's what gets rewarded. And that's what gets affirmed gets rewarded and gets, or what gets affirmed gets done. And so we have a system that rewards logos, logic, practicality. And that makes sense because that's the way our system is designed. And those are all good things. But what's the, what we're losing, the, the, at its expense of becoming uber logical, uber pragmatic, is we're losing the sense of not just creativity and art, but we're losing the ability to uh, do complex problem solving. We're losing the ability to navigate ambiguity. So as adults, we love security. We're almost addicted to security. And that's we've set up our entire life, our life system around 401ks, insurance, uh, safety, practicality. Everything is set up with systems of uh, security in place. And that's really antithetical to exploration, curiosity, and creativity. And uh, this is, again, the long-winded version, but it's very important not only to understand where I came from, but where all of your listeners are coming from. Whether they, if we were to ask them the question flat out, are you, are you creative? Are you artistic? Many people would say no because they have a voice of judgment or a critical element of them that's kind of reverting back or defaulting back to that time when they were four, five, six, seven years old, and their art wasn't as good as Peggy's art. Their drawing of a duck didn't look as photorealistic as Dave's drawing of a duck. And so we just stop our singing, our dancing, our creation, our writing. Uh, and so it's it's really just a an extension or a play out of the system that we have designed. So I didn't start as an artist. Uh, I was very much a, a student, uh, a business student, a numbers guy. And that went all the way up until, you know, through college, got my business degree, was a partner in a firm, very logical work, seven to seven, seven days a week, like all good hard workers are supposed to do first in last out, but never explored. It was all checklists and just knocking off what other people were expecting me to do or be. And I went through an early midlife crisis to get there. Soren Kierkegaard said that all change is preceded by crisis. I wish I could say <laughs> I'm, I'm the asterisk to that, but it's not. I had to go through this uh, down. I had to go through this fall of losing. For me, it was losing everything financially after the dot com bomb. But uh, it could be for other people. It could be a relationship uh, that falls apart that they thought was going to last forever. It could be a health issue that they thought they were bulletproof until uh, uh, health strikes them or a loved one and changes their life forever. For me, it was my finances. I lost all of my security, everything that I was addicted to, everything that I thought life was about, all of a sudden was taken from me. And I was left with nothing security-wise at age 30. And that's when I went in exploration of something else that had greater significance in my life, greater meaning than just money or security. And that's really where this came out. So art ended up being a, uh, a portal, a gateway to a higher form of living, of loving, of being. Uh, than I'd previously been exposed to. And so through art was how I accessed this greater sense of purpose of fulfillment or success that I didn't even know existed prior to being 30, because up to 30, all that meant for me success was to have a great job, to make lots of money, and then hopefully retire soon so that then I could start relaxing and being happy. <laughs> and it just didn't it just didn't work out that way. And I needed to go through the pain. I needed to go through the darkness. Uh, or else I never would have found a new land. I would have been perfectly comfortable within my uh, linear, logical comfort zone of security. A quote I love, once you've lost everything, you're free to explore everything. And that sounds exactly like what you did. So I want to just go back a little bit. Um, dot com bubble, you're working the seven to seven, completely tied up in it. You have a wife, uh, three young boys, you got the mortgage, everything, and this midlife crisis occurs. How do you get yourself out of that from a mental state? And during this time when you start to explore art, were you currently working or were you completely unemployed and fully dove into art? I, uh, 
it would, I, I'd love to be able to tell you it was like triumphant, you know, pump my fist in the air. You know, now I'm an artist. And that's really not the way it occurred at all. What happened was, is I had long, dark nights of suffering um, because I, I didn't know what I was going to I didn't have any money. I didn't have any security and I didn't have any future plans. Uh, I just had lost everything. I'd just been blindsided and really didn't know how to get up on my own two feet again. And really, frankly, almost didn't want to. I was so uh, hit with or struck with this. Uh, I call it now a challenge. Then it was a nightmare. It was like a shark attack. Having all my money taken from me, all my security, everything that I'd worked so hard, so carefully, so conservatively, planning out and strategizing in my life, my business, my uh, family, and then to have that all taken from me in a matter of a couple of days um, in the implosion of the uh, dot-com bubble bursting. And it was, it was just a nightmare train wreck for me. And so I went through a long, dark period of just suffering. And as my wife and I went through this, and she was my my wing woman, my my stalwart wing woman through this experience, uh, we, we really uh, huddled together, realizing that you know once we've lost everything, we could be free to do anything, but first we've got to generate energy, we've got to generate momentum and kind of a picture for what maybe we'd want to do. And the first thing I needed to do was start to breathe again to be able to just experience life and love again. And so that meant turning my back completely on this capitalistic American dream success model. And my wife and I really very intentionally and purposefully redefined success for us. This is 10 years into our marriage. Uh, Redefined it for us as what if success was actually a good meal with our family sharing fellowship at the end of the day, just sharing communion with our family. So the five of us, my three young boys, my wife and I, having a good conversation together at the end of the day. And if that's the new definition of success, I'm like, hell, I can do that. I can do that today. And you know what? I can probably even do that tomorrow. And if that's the definition of success, then I can be successful. And so is that changing the definition of success from money or power and prestige and possessions over to this shift over to relationship and love and joy and empathy and gratitude. So it was a very conscious shift of mindset from everything that I've been taught and trained and disciplined and programmed to do up until that point, shifting into a new zone, into a new painted picture for what I wanted the future to be. And my wife was alongside me. We, we both signed off on this new definition of success. We're pretty excited about it. And then started to try and find a way to build a living around it. How could we um, create? And it ended up being that I was painting a bunch at the time. I was hanging out with artists. I was exploring with artists. This was all just part of the healing therapeutic process for me. But I learned so much through them that was beyond the mastery of the craft or the technical skills. And it was about thinking. It was about expansive thinking. It was about uh, conscious thinking, intentional thinking, uh, and really put me in a different place. And I was able to go back and then use the business language that I'd learned to be able to give those ideas and concepts, handles and structure so that people who didn't see themselves as creative could all of a sudden open up and have access to this world, to this porthole that art gave me. There's many different ways to it. Art gave it to me, but philosophy can give it to us. Uh, relationships can give it to us. It, it opens us up to a higher level of, of being and knowing that's not just level one reactionary, uh, money is success, fame is important. It, it was a much different stance on how to understand and live life that was really exciting for me that I didn't know a lot about up until that point, because I was an alpha dog. I was an athlete. I I was so focused on dividing and conquering that anything beyond that, I didn't spend much time in the world of creativity, the world of gratitude, the world of joy, the world of silence. All of that was a mystery to me because I was so focused on checklists and getting stuff done and making money and being successful. And I didn't realize that they weren't 
entirely separate functions, but they're actually two functions that are designed to work together like yin and yang in dynamic tension alongside each other as uh, compatible uh, forces as opposed to polar opposites clashing. Now, either I am logical and linear and uh, an alpha dog, or I am creative and whimsical and beta. It's not either or for me. That's where I learned it's yes and. And that was a really, really exciting combination for me to put together. And it's really what has allowed this to be so sticky is I realized very early on, even when I was not uh, a talented or honed speaker whatsoever, the message was so attractive, so compelling, this dynamic tension, the discipline of creativity, the tension between analytics and metrics and imagination and creativity bound together was really very exciting and very sticky for audiences. And so it was just a matter of me harnessing this message and delivering it in a way where it continued to make sense and make more sense uh, because it's, it's, it really is a fascinating idea to think that we're using a very small portion of our problem-solving skills because of the way that we've been raised, the way that we've been fed media, the way that we've been fed history, the way that we've been fed learning. It's all been very formulaic. And to get outside of that formula is is crazy awesome. <laughs> and I, I use that language almost because there's very few words. There's very few big flowery words that could describe the feeling of what creativity does to logical linear thinking. Uh, so I'll default to surfer language like, dude, it's awesome. Uh, or if, I could, if I could send through an emoji right now, uh, that's what I would do because it's more of a feeling than it is a concrete linear logical concept. But once we tap into that, worlds open up, opportunities open up, challenges begin to disappear. Uh, we begin to see new and creative and fun ways around existing uh, roadblocks. And each one becomes a puzzle to figure out. And they're, they're just an exciting way to look at life where there's no real roadblocks to success. There's just barriers that need to be creatively worked around and that all can be worked around just using different mindsets. Wow. I mean, just so many great pivot points there and, and tidbits of knowledge that you just provided. Uh, I mean, you mentioned just that you were hoping my listeners would want to hear about some triumphant story of you rising from the ashes, but it wasn't that at all. It was about those deep, dark days. And I love hearing that because seeing how successful you are right now, I think would be easy to say, you know what, that just occurred for him overnight, but this is so far from the case. And if there's something my listeners really take away, I hope it's about those dark days and it's about the hard work you put in. So, I mean, you mentioned during your creative time, um, you're learning from different mentors. What exactly was your day like when you were working on your art? Uh, you were hanging around a lot of artists. What did that look like for you at the time? Yeah, I couldn't get enough of it. I was, I was fascinated and I was curious because even though I'd known the name, Pablo Picasso, Michelangelo, Andy Warhol, uh, I'd known them, but I didn't know them. And so that's, this was an exploration in the mind of historical masters, as well as what I was seeing currently on the market, what people were drawn to, what I was drawn to, what artists were thinking, what they were trying to convey. So it no longer became a dormant painting in a book or in a museum. The paintings themselves came alive and started talking to me and interacting with me. And then I started uh, trying to figure out how they uh, created depth, how they created light, how they created form, how they created stories. And so the narrative behind the painting always became the lead story for me, not the painting itself, not what I thought I was seeing uh, or logically what I was seeing, but rather why were they painting a haystack with a farmer with that kind of cloud cover? And there was always the, the subcontext to every painting that became more and more fascinating to me and unlocking the meanings behind paintings, unlocking the meanings behind poetry and lyrics and music and photography. There's always that first linear logical level that we all see it. You know, I like those colors. I, I like that that character is smiling and not frowning. I like that there's no violence. 
uh, whatever it is, we, we all have a personal preference, a logical preference for art, but that's not what most artists are sharing with us. They're sharing a deep, heavy uh, philosophy, sometimes dark, sometimes light. Every artist has a reason that they're sharing and a message that they're trying to share. And that was really exciting to me to try and unlock and find all of the artists' hidden messages in all of their creations and how much can be shared in a non-linear, logical world. It was, it was really fascinating to me. I mean, you mentioned the art coming alive, and I cannot wait for some of my listeners who haven't seen you perform before. We'll link up some of the videos. Your art truly speaks and does come alive during your performances. Uh, so I want to dive into your speaking engagements. So you go from business world, now you're developing your creative. How do you get involved with speaking, and what was your first uh, speaking engagement like? Sure. The, um, what, what I ended up doing is I had this idea, so this concept of the discipline of creativity, and I didn't know how to speak. I really didn't even know how to paint all that well. This is 15 years ago. Uh, much of my fascination was how to, how to figure this out. You know, like we're, we're children and we're one and a half and no one's handing us a playbook for how to walk. You know, what's the proper distance to put our foot in front of the other, how, where to have our hands to brace in case we fall. We're just passionate that we want to figure this out. And it doesn't matter that we fall down. It doesn't matter that we tip over. It doesn't matter that our, um, whatever it is, whatever the case, whatever our, we just want to figure it out and we do not stop until we figure it out. And that's really where I was with, with art is I was a, a toddler wanting to teach myself art not necessarily specifically how to paint, just this entire world. And I couldn't get enough. So that from the time that I got up to the time I went to bed, uh, this was during a very specific time after I had lost everything, before I'd fully formed this keynote presentation, is I just dove into art really, really deep. The history, the current artists, the current musicians, the, everything about it. And so that study, uh, personal study, unlocked more for me than any class ever could have, that any mentor ever could have uh, shared with me because they didn't know what I was searching for. And it would have been a block to rather than a highway toward. And so I picked and chose different artists to spend time with because they were filling certain buckets of curiosity. And so now when I paint, uh, when I paint from the stage for large audiences, I realize the audience doesn't want perfection. They don't want an absolute perfect painting. What they want is to be fascinated. And so I create these paintings in three minutes, choreographed to rock music, because that's fascinating. And that was really a study in consumer demand and pop culture and audiences more than it was uh, anything else, is I realized that audiences love fascination. So if I can create art in a fascinating way on stage in three minutes, that will be far more popular, far more sticky, and far more engaging then if I took 45 minutes to do a perfectly good uh, photorealistic painting of Abraham Lincoln. So it was a different sort of mindset going in, and that's what enabled me to create it. I think what you're discussing here is what I've heard you talk about before is how you become a category of one and really differentiate yourself um, and create something special. Is that really what you're diving into here? It is. And so I, I'd said earlier that I'd never been to, or maybe I told you this off the air, you know, I've never gone to Toastmasters. I've never gone to speaking school. I've never taken any classes on how to speak. I've really never taken any formal art classes. I've audited classes that some of my friends who were artists were teaching, but it's been much more of a one-on-one -on -one seeking, uh, not a uh, paid art class and or a paid speaking class. And so what I did is I went and studied comedians. Mm. I went and studied live musicians. I went and studied Cirque du Soleil. I went and studied what the most fascinating entertainers in the world were doing. And then I grabbed those concepts, that timing, those visuals, and then I crafted a keynote presentation around it. So it's highly uh, entertaining, very uh, intentionally, but I'm also delivering high level content in unique ways that people haven't seen. So I don't use a PowerPoint. I don't use these are the three uh, ways to access creativity. I don't do anything in the conventional way. I do it all in a very uh, intuitive, emotional, and theatrical way. And it's fascinating for audiences because they're, they're learning, but they're being entertained through the process. So they don't feel like they're in a school when they're, when they're in my show. 
I got goosebumps when you mentioned how many different outlets you're learning from, whether it be a concert, um, a show, anything like that, you're constantly learning. Uh, My wife and I were in New York this weekend to go see a Broadway show, and I remember watching it and just trying to pick out little creatives out of it uh, that I can implement into my life. Uh, One thing I want to talk about is you've talked a lot about patience in the past, and I've heard you mention that in the past 12 months, you've developed more patience than in your entire life. Uh, Can you hit on that a little bit? And what about these last 12 months uh, required you to really develop some more patience? Sure. Uh, Because I I have, and this is part of, I think any entrepreneur, the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they're passionate about it and because they see uh, a really exciting upside. And so for me, yeah, I, I think I've always thought this message should be way bigger than it really is. And that I'm, I'm doing something problematic to hold this back because if I wasn't in the way of this message, everyone would be attracted to it. Everyone would, would want more of it and be using it. And so what can I do as a, a conduit? What can I do as a performer to not, not get in the way of this message, to help fuel the message forward without allowing myself to be a barrier uh, to, to entry? And so there's been a lot of patience for me in realizing this is not meant to blow up. This is not meant to go viral. This is not meant to be an overnight success. But this is a long, uh, long, hard journey. And, you know, I say hard because I'm doing hard work, but it's a fun journey. And the patience is what I'm learning is to make it more rewarding so that I don't become anxious, so that I don't become frustrated that that video didn't go viral, that that messaging, that that interview that I did on, you know, that big outlet didn't blow up. It's all just continuing to make deposits in the bank, deposits in the bank, deposits in the bank of the future brand. And, you know, maybe someday I'll experience the benefits of compound interest and it'll come back to me. But right now, it's all about making deposits and not making any withdrawals of anxiety or frustration or uh, anything else that would prevent me from continuing to make deposits going forward. Hmm. Very interesting perspective there. And I, I love just how you mentioned those little deposits and applying that sweat equity to hopefully, if it does pay off one day in the end, that's great. But it seems like you're truly enjoying the journey right now. Uh, and I know when we first jumped on the call, you mentioned about your mental side of things. Do you think your mental and physical practice um, with exercise, breathing, all that really attributes to you being able to control your emotions during all of this? For sure. Mind, body, spirit. And so it's that that triangle. You know, I train my body very hard. I eat very clean uh, because I'm looking to, even though I'm 46, I'm looking to be uh, more healthy next year than I am this year. And so to do that, I'm looking to shift, to relearn new ways. I I can't train the same way that I did when I was 19, when I was an athlete. So I have to shift and learn new ways that my body's going to respond now. I need to eat differently now than when I was 19. So there's a lot of shifting and knowledge that goes into how I train, why I train. You know, I train at the level of, of really an Olympic athlete each time that I train. That's all I know. That's all I've trained for. Fortunately, my body's healthy enough to still let me do that. And I do it for short periods of time. I don't, you know, an Olympic athlete would train, uh, maybe do four to six times what I do, but in the times that I do train, it's at that level. At the times that I uh, practice on the mental side of things, uh, that would be the discipline of gratitude, the discipline of joy, the discipline of mindful, conscious living present in the now and not worrying about the future or being anxious about the the past, those were all disciplines that I had to learn because my default language is to be frustrated that I'm not moving fast enough or bummed that I didn't make these advantageous moves early on. And that negativity has no value. Uh, for me moving forward. It, just doesn't, it doesn't do anything to move the needle. So why have I spent so much time being negative about my lack of growth or how slow things are going or that I thought uh, I would have had more uh, business by now? Uh, and I, I'm, I'm being 
I'm speaking in a way uh, because I, you, your listeners may look at this or look at what I've done and say, what are you talking about? You're crazy successful. And I look at it and say, I'm not anywhere near as close to where I thought I was going to be. So that's why patience is such a big element. And I also, through this process, and this, is, this will probably come as a, a nuclear bomb <laughs> for, for some, but I learned that uh, success is a false oasis, that I was never going to achieve. I will never achieve what I think I deserve or how, how this picture that I have in my mind of success. And the reason being is because each time I come close, I move it out further away. I move it out further away. I move it out further away. I'll never have enough money. I'll never have enough financial security. I'll never have enough fans who you know are wanting to see my presentation. And so I realized it's not about that anymore. This is about creating meaningful work. It's about the work that I'm doing, not the amplification or the distribution or how much other people recognize what I'm doing. And so as I turn inward and focus on the work and whoever receives it well, whoever it resonates with, that's a new follower. I hit them in the same way that I was hit 15 years ago. And it's a slow grind. It's not an explosion. And I'm nowhere close to where I thought I was going to be. But that's okay because I'm, I'm experiencing uh, a lot of happiness and contentment and fulfillment along the way. And the more that I let go of this idea of success, the more success actually comes to me that other people would say, no, you, dude, you're, you're successful. Like I would, I would love to have those kind of gigs or those kind of books or that kind of an audience. And so comparison is the thief of joy. And I'm, I'm very guilty of spending a lifetime of comparing myself to others and measuring myself against others. And that's a losing proposition for me. And I really think anyone else, it can be, it can be a catalyst in some ways, but when you take it to the nth degree, like I do in virtually anything, it becomes a losing proposition. It becomes demotivating. And so that's why this last year, patience has become first and foremost on my uh, checklist that I'm disciplined about uh, approaching each day with, because without it, I'm going to lose ground. I'm going to lose value. I'm going to lose momentum through critique, through my comparison, through my uh, anxiety or frustration that uh, the stock market is not moving in the right way, that pop culture is not moving in the right way, social media is not moving in the right way. All those now are just different things that I want to try and figure out, not big obstacles that are looming over me that you know someday maybe I'll figure this crazy world out. This is all just a journey that I'm trying to learn to be patient and unlock them time at a time and not measure my success based on external things that I would have measured on my, in my uh, first half of life. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Because I know the second we get off this call, I'm going to go rewind that last bit and listen to that over and over again. Uh, because the number one thing I struggle with uh, in my life without a doubt is patience. So what you just provided myself and the listeners there is just incredible. Uh, I mean, you speak as well in so much depth with your mental training, your physical training. Who, who are you learning that from? Or is that you just testing out new things and finding what works? Uh, that's a little bit of both. And so I, I do spend a lot of time uh, particularly researching the mystics, St. Francis of Assisi, John of the Cross, uh, a lot of Rumi, uh, a lot of Eastern philosophers, Socrates, Plato. Uh, they came up with these concepts hundreds and thousands of, of years ago, literally. And they they just have, um, they didn't stick with me when I first learned those names, you know, you know, because I, I studied, I knew Socrates for the test. I knew Plato for the test. This is in high school and college. I was able to speak to the platonic form and whatever from an academic standpoint, but to realize now that the wisdom, the life wisdom, the enlightenment that they shared is entirely applicable to everything that I'm going through now is I'm looking to make a, a splash on Snapchat as I'm looking to try and understand stock valuations and human behavior and cognitive biases and why we consume the media that we do, why our political situation is the way that it is, why our corporate hierarchical situation is set up the way that it is, why our children learn the exact same industrial factory 
Victorian model, why it hasn't evolved in, over the course of the last 80 years, even though everything about our world has changed except the way we educate our kids. So it's uh, deconstructing all of these things that I'd learned about in the first half of life logically, but not really understanding them at a full 360 degree level. And so that's what I'm doing now is just going back and unpacking and deconstructing and reverse engineering whatever it is, comedy, art, theater, business, leadership, family, uh, parenting, all of those things now I look at from a beginner's mind because I know how I learned about them in the first half of life, but I also know that I've got a different perspective now. So everything that I see and take in, I'm taking in uh, with a beginner's mind as if it's the first time I've ever heard of this concept of social media. How would I, how would I build a brand? How would I communicate with the people if today was the very first day I'd ever heard of social media before? If I didn't have any baggage that, you know, Facebook's just this never-ending high school reunion. If Twitter was not just this busy superhighway of misinformation, uh, how, how would I approach it if today was the very first day I'd ever experienced it before? What opportunities would I see if I didn't have baggage? So I try and just approach everything with that kind of a mindset. Mm. I love your approach there and your reverse engineering. It's, it's funny going into this call. I knew how creative you were um, and your business side of things, but just seeing how much of a renaissance man you truly are with so many different things, it's cool to hear. Um, so can we talk slightly about kids in the classroom? I've heard you mention before, ignite fascination and curiosity outside of the classroom. You mentioned the school system and how it's holding our kids back today. You raised three boys. I know they're a little bit older now. What were you doing with your kids to help spark their creative? And what do you think current parents should be doing? Sure. School. And, and at first, I used to be a real burden for public school because I was, I was very critical of their systems that they just focused on reading, writing, arithmetic. They kept cutting programs, cutting budget for arts, for physical activity, for uh, even things that involved relationship uh, started to get cut. And I feel my sense was, is those were actually the most important elements of what it means to be human. Reading, writing, and arithmetic were just kind of silos, but that I realized that I need to be more actively involved as a parent and let school just be school, to not uh, require their the teachers, my boys' teachers, to give them art, not require my teachers to give my boys morals not required to give my boys ethics, that I would give them those things. I would teach them about creativity. I would teach them about spirituality. I would teach them about relationships. But just allow school to be school. Allow it to be the factory that it is, but also allow them you know, to push themselves to understand that school, we're going to do the best that we can. Grades are not the end-all, be-all. I think my boys are capable of performing academically at a high level. So I'd like to see them play within um, that set of rules, play in that sandbox and do well because I know that they can do well, but that wasn't the measuring stick for what college they were gonna go to or how they were gonna achieve success in life. Uh, by the way, I've got three teenage boys. Uh, one of them is studying at Berkeley. He's actually studying his major's rhetoric at Berkeley. And another son is studying sculpture in Switzerland. Oh. Uh, and then I've got, I've got a son in high school as well. And so really that allowing public school to feed them uh, logic, but more important than that, to feed them a sense of diversity, to feed them a sense of relationship and how to exist in a really complex, messy world. Public school is very messy. Uh, it's not a um, clean academic environment. And so you need to look and search and find ways not only to educate yourself and to be self-driven, autotelic, I say, but also to relate to a diverse body of people who don't all think exactly like you think. And that was the one challenge I saw with both homeschooling as well as private school is groupthink is if your only exposure is to affirm what you already know, then you're not going to be curious and seek and grow and look to be tolerant and empathetic. And so raising my boys in public school was really important to me, but also teaching them at home uh, beyond that was really important. So it's almost a dualistic education, right? Uh, public education as well as homeschool at the same time. Public education for reading, writing, arithmetic, homeschooling for the arts and ethics and relationship.
Oh, I love the dualistic education approach. So if your kids say you were just having them now, would you still make sure they're in a public school system? I would. I would. Um, and it, the thing is, is we've, we've done private school. We've tried it. Uh, and there's, there's some very positive elements of it. I think the work ethic that's uh, installed is very healthy. Uh, there's a lot of positive things about it. But looking at who I want them ultimately to become, public school is the more efficient, better way for them to become relationally diverse, which is really what life is all about. It's not about kicking ass and getting straight A's and becoming an investment banker and making tons of money. I think that's a nice um, offering that life can give us if we want to choose that route. And I don't, I, I welcome anyone to do that. I welcome my boys to do that, but not at the expense of their relationships, not at the expense of their health, not at the expense of love. And that's really what I want to build into my boys is if, if I really truly believe that the meaning of life is love, to be loved and to give love, then what am I doing in my life? What are my boys doing in their lives? What am I rewarding to actually point towards that goal of love? That is their education in public school pointing them towards love? No, not really. Are all of the adults who want them to get into a good college and be recognized and be financially stable and secure? And is that about love? Not really. They're all parts of life. They're all necessary parts of life. We need to eat. We need to have shelter. We need to um, have additional income if we want to have the luxury of building a family. But those aren't the meaning of life. The actually, the family itself, giving to others, sharing with others. How can I help? How can I, how can I be a bigger part of making the world a better place? Those are all elements that are couched in love. And I just didn't see that happening around me. Did the system, the corporate world, the educational world, what's affirmed by other adults didn't seem to have a lot to do with love. And so it just was important to me, uh, regardless of what my boys did, what they studied, how good their grades were, that they always were in touch with love in some way. And that's just kind of a rudimentary, again, changing of ideology from what I'd experienced growing up to what I wanted to share and what I wanted my boys to experience. No, it's funny hearing your perspective. Uh, I was with my mom this past weekend, and we have some similar thoughts on the school system. And we were talking about when, when I was younger, and there were certain days she'd take me out of school and we would go spend the day just maybe grabbing lunch or doing something. And there are very few days uh, in my life I can ever remember being in the classroom. But the days that I spent with her, my brothers, my sister, all of those days outside of school where love was such a profound thing, um, it shaped me. It shaped who I am today and left some lasting impressions. So it was very cool hearing you talk about that. That, that is such a beautiful thing. And I hope every one of your listeners uh, takes that to heart because was it operationally efficient to pull you out of school? No. Uh, did, you, were, did you become more, more intellectually inclined and learn more on that day out of school? No. But did you have a moment? with your mom that filled your soul and that you can recall today as a life-giving, life-affirming moment? Yes. And so I look for those opportunities to fill my boys with life-affirming moments. So I do that as well is, you know, I get them up, pack their lunch, uh, get them out the door, put them in school. And then on certain days, I'll just pull them right out of school. I'll walk into their class with a note, pull them out, and we're going to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> pull them out, and we're going to go see the Padres. Pull them out, and we're going to go to Disneyland. It would always be random. They wouldn't know it's coming, but I would delightfully surprise them to the upside with an experience with dad that they'll remember the rest of their life. And it's far, far more important than them learning to you know, spell cat that day. Far, far more important than them learning how many miles long is the <laughs> Nile River far more important than learning derivatives in calculus. And so it's the importance of life that it plays in the relationship that I want to have with my boys and what they feel is life affirming and giving to them. And again, we're in this system. So the majority of the time they're rolling and doing the best they can in the system. But periodically I will give them jackpot rewards to the upside that they didn't know they were expecting that just fill their soul. And I love doing that delightful surprise and, and just creating these experiences with them. Um, and I, I would almost argue you that 
you will learn more during the days with your sons um, because the lessons you're teaching them about life and how to how to be a person. Um, there are so many little things they're taking away from you that you might not even realize at the time, but will be with them forever. Uh, I can speak highly to that based on how my parents taught me different things during those moments. Um, so I want to pivot here slightly and just kind of get back into your art. Uh, your art is truly incredible, but you don't sell your art. Can you tell my listeners what exactly it is you do with your art? Sure. I, uh, I, I, it's true. I do not sell it. I don't sell it anywhere. I don't sell it online. I don't sell it in galleries. I don't uh, encourage people to exit through the gift shop and pick up a mug (laughs) with a print. And I realize that that's counterintuitive because I'm leaving a lot of money on the table. A lot of money, a lot of money you are leaving on the table. (laughs) If money, money was my goal, I could be a lot richer if I sold my art, but that's not of interest to me, what's interesting to me is to allow art to be a vehicle or a channel by which to reach other people. And so you can't put a price on cool. And so I create my art in an effort to just be cool, to be something that people say, wow. And then they, they actually, once they experience that, wow, they want it. They want to own it. They want to own a piece of that. Wow. But they can't. But that creates fascination and it creates tribes that have continued to follow me. And what I will do is I will hide. um, So I'll do a painting and I will actually hide it in a city that I'm performing. Uh, So I'll hide it in New York or I'll hide it in Seattle or I'll hide it in London. Uh, And usually, you know, if it's maybe I'll I'll hide a Seahawk or a Russell Wilson painting in Seattle or uh, a Mets painting or a Knicks painting or a Jay-Z painting in or Beyonce in New York. something that's relative to the area. And then I'll do a treasure hunt on my social media where I'll start launching some clues as to where this painting might be hiding. And the first person to find it gets to keep it. And so that's people have uh, created networks to try and find my artwork that's hiding around the world. And that's far more fun than for me than trying to uh, raise the prices and get more money. I would rather have people's engagement and following an interest than I would their money. And it's been far more fun for me to do that than it is to try and uh, swell my bank account because I have sold a bunch of, of art. That's just more interesting to me and I've had more fun doing it and I don't have any intention of ever selling my art ever. It's just not part of what I um, am interested in doing. And I'm really fortunate that I'm able to make a, a good living on the corporate lecture circuit and with other uh, modes of income that I really don't have to sell my art. Uh, so it's really been liberating for me to let my art just be pure for the sake of creation, not for the sake of selling. And that, that's a big differentiator uh, for me as an artist is I never make a painting to sell. And I think a lot of artists create in an effort to get maximum value on the sale of this painting is if if an artist sells a painting, I think that's great. I want them to make a lot of money, but I don't want them to make the painting so that they can sell it. I want them to make the purest form of art that they can possibly make, the most true to themselves. And if other people want to pay a lot of money for it, I think that's fantastic because they want a piece of you. They want a piece of your ideology, a piece of your genius. But I think starting at that point of trying to create a painting that's going to make a lot of money is the the wrong approach that artists will oftentimes take when they're forced to make a living doing their art is they start to get their priorities a little bit backwards and they're not able to make the highest and best art possible because they're bound by the commoditization of will this sell will this make me money or is this just going to hang empty in my studio so it's a, a big different mindset than uh than a lot of artists have. And I'm very grateful that I'm able to approach it from that perspective. I admire you so much for being so true and authentic to yourself. And then what that has allowed is so many people who would have never been able to afford one of your pieces end up with one. And I'm sure those are lifelong memories of the chase, them trying to find one of your paintings in one of the cities. Uh, It's very cool to hear. So I know your time's valuable. Uh, Just a few quick hit questions for you uh, before we wrap up today. So right now, What's one thing in your life that you would like to change? More patience. <laughs> this is this. Yeah, this is a journey. I said I started about a year ago. Um, I'm just I'm still a baby. I'm an infant in understanding patience because probably after this call, I'm going to go through my email inbox and become impatient on projects <laughs> that haven't been completed or a booking that hasn't been secured or a flight that has yet to be uh, 
taken care of. And so I will continue practicing patience, not every day, but really every hour. That's something that I'd like to change. That's something I'd like to get better at. Oh, you and me both. All right. So next one, what's an idea you've had that has changed in the past year because you've learned something new? Visuals. Uh, so from my performances, realizing how the audience is set up, how far apart they are in shoulder length, where the stage is, what I have behind the stage, where I align myself in connection with the multiple camera shoot that I'm doing, how to use drone cameras, lipstick cameras, GoPro cameras, all to create wow moments. So using a lot of the similar setups that we currently have in our standard AV package, but moving them around to create theater, moving them around. And I did this working with Cirque du Soleil. Uh, I had them come and I studied with them on how to create visuals that are stunning. And now I've incorporated that into my keynote uh, speaking. That's just been the last year. Oh, that is very cool. So last one, what are you most passionate about in your life right now? Love. Um, and I say that because I think I've kind of known this for a while, but haven't been able to say that specifically. And I, maybe I would have said before, you know, humanity or serving other people or being content or being happy. And all of those are good answers, but they, they weren't deep enough for me um, as far as what really, really drives me. What's at the core of, of who I want to be and what I want to see the world around me be. So in, in an effort to be the change that I want to see in the world, if love is the core driver, and it's very, very simple, everything, if, if things that I do are couched in love, then it's going to be good. I, I will not sacrifice love. I will not sacrifice giving um, in an effort to succeed or in an effort to achieve financial success or critical acclaim or significance. It will all be done with love as being the lead blocker in every single situation. And uh, that's still something I'm, I'm working on trying to define. But what's the purpose of life? Love. What's the meaning of life? Love. What's my ikigai? What's my passion in life? Love. Man, those things are simple. I just haven't been living that way yet. So now how can I, how can I take this beautiful life that I've been, you know, fortunate enough to live sitting here at 46 and how can I continue making it more and more about love and less and less about success and stuff and power and prestige and possessions? Wow. That is beautiful. I mean, I, I don't think there's a stage big enough, um, for enough people to hear your message, your insights, your creativity. You truly are inspiring, and I hope more and more people every day discover your art, your speaking, your insights, because it has profound impacts on both myself, and I know so many people who have mentioned the same things to me as well. So Eric Wall, author of The Spark and the Grind, where can my listeners find out more about you? Where can they get the book? All of those little things. Yeah, uh, on social media, uh, if you just Google my name, Eric Wall, E-R-I-K-W-A-H-L, I actually, I, I handle all of my own social media accounts. So anyone that hits me up on social, I reply back, uh, not because um, I'm supposed to or not because uh, that's the most effective social media strategy. I reply back because I'm connected to the people who are connected to me, and it means a lot to me. So reach out to me on social media, and I will reach back. That's just what I do. It's, it's what I like to do. So, uh, yeah, I give that out there. And, you know, I, I thank everyone who's, who's listened. And like I like said, I'm just being patient. I don't know how this is going to resonate. I don't know how it's going to be taken in. But if people are still listening now, there must be an element of what you're experiencing that I experienced 15 years ago that is kind of an aha moment. Like, wait, there's more to this that wasn't comprehensive, but there's more to that that I'd like to explore. And I'm not the, I'm not the holder of this genius. I'm just a translator and I'm going back and I'm taking the great mystics of the past and just excited to repurpose them and share them in a pop culture world that is more interested in gamification and social media and Snapchat and Xbox. I want to use those tools to channel the mystics. And that's just exciting for me to be able to try and figure out creative ways to do that. Mm, incredibly unselfish way and perspective you have on things. So Eric, thank you so much. Uh, we'll definitely make sure we have everything linked up in the show notes to connect my listeners with you. Uh, and I'm looking forward to them reaching out to you. So thank you so much for joining us on what got you there. 
Let's blow it up. Thanks for the opportunity. Very cool of you guys to uh, to listen. And thank you, Sean, for your time and your interest. I appreciate it. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.